Turn with me to Mark's Gospel and 7.31 to 8.33. This, as I hope you will see, is a, a, a coherent unit or structured unit in Mark's narrative. 7.31. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketfuls full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and sent them to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing that you have no bread? Did you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? But the answer is no. Take a miracle. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and had laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? 
And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, that's uh, our passage today, Mark 7:31 to 8:33. It is the midpoint in Mark's gospel. And his argument to this point, he began by focusing our minds on the fact that Christianity is about Jesus. Specifically, his message of forgiveness of sins, which is provocative and leads to many different reactions. By what authority does Jesus say we need our sins forgiven? Mark, and we saw this last week, sets out the evidence to establish Jesus' identity and authority. These astonishing miracles in chapters 4 and 5. Miracles that not only evidence Jesus' identity, but point us forward to the new creation, the kingdom of God in its fullness, where there will be no destruction from nature, no demonic activity, no sickness, and no death. Jesus, his message, reactions, evidence, and then At the midpoint in Mark's gospel, the question from the Lord Jesus to every human being, who do you say that I am? Who is he? Who is Jesus? Now let's pray that by the end of our time together, we'll all see and hear and understand who he is. Our Father, this section of Mark's gospel teaches us that it takes a miracle from God to understand who Jesus is. And we simply ask for that miracle of understanding, that you would open our ears to hear and eyes to see. And we pray that for those of us who do understand who he is, that you would continue today to open our ears and eyes to see more of him, or to rediscover who he is. And we pray that 
in his name. Amen. Now, how do people understand who Jesus is? The answer from this section of Mark, and I guess our main point today, there is really only one. It takes a miracle from God to understand who Jesus is. Let me just anticipate how I'll apply this later on and say to you, if you are sitting here as a Christian, that a miracle from God has happened in your life. As you engage in evangelism, it will take a miracle from God to open anyone's heart to the gospel. Now, a comment about the structure of this section in Mark. Writers have their style. Two of my favorite writers are E.M. Foster and Charles Dickens. They're very different. E.M. Foster's style is languid prose. Dickens is descriptive detail. Mark, the author of this gospel, has his style. If you want to spot Mark a mile away, two things in particular stand out. The first is that he always writes in threes. And uh, our passage is a striking example of that. Just look in your Bibles with me. Part one is the miracle where Jesus heals a deaf man. Part two is the bit in the middle, 1 to 21, where Jesus' disciples fail to understand. And part three, the second miracle, that strange miracle where Jesus has to touch the man twice to see. Three parts in Mark's structure. A miracle, the disciples' inability to understand and then a second miracle. Now, seeing these patterns of three is not simply getting inside Mark's kind of literary mind. It means when you see a pattern of three like that, that almost certainly you've cut the grain of the text of Mark as Mark intended us to. We need to remember that the headings you have in your Bibles, these black headings and the chapter Numbers were not there when Mark wrote. Our task is to try to work out Mark's structure. So three parts here. A miracle, a big bit in the middle about their lack of understanding, and a second miracle. And the second classic stylistic feature of Mark is what is referred to technically as interleaving, or more colloquially and more helpfully as a sandwich. I prefer uh, sandwiching. Uh, we understand what a sandwich is. Uh, and two slices of bread with a, a big chunk in the middle. Somebody after the service one did helpfully point out to me that some sandwiches are more than two slices of bread. Oh, I know that. <laughs> I was trying. <laughs> two slices of bread and stuff in the middle. And the two slices of bread here are the two miracles. The bit in the middle is their inability to understand. And this is not kind of Mark being kind of neat. 
It's not that we're spotting a, a kind of particularly smart literary technique. The, the point is that the bits on the outside are relevant to the bit in the middle. The bit in the middle, they just cannot understand. What do they need? A miracle to see, to hear. What are the bits on the outside? A miracle about hearing and seeing. The spiritual point. It takes a miracle from God for us to understand who Jesus is. What does understanding mean? It means hearing, seeing, and then being able to speak the gospel. Now that's Mark's structure. I hope you're persuaded that that's what he's doing. Now that's a kind of bird's eye view of the wood. Let's come down now inside the trees and uh, you'll see inside the service sheet, the way I've divided it up, we'll take the bit in the middle first, the inability of the disciples to understand, and then the two miracles, and then I'll wrap things up with a number of applications. Firstly then, 8, 1 to 21, failing to hear, see, and understand. Now Mark records a miracle here where Jesus feeds 4,000 people from seven loaves and a few small fish. And no one leaves hungry. In fact, there were seven baskets left over. It's an astonishing miracle. Just notice with me how it ends, verse 10. Immediately, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, that might ring some bells for us. The disciples certainly had been here before. Just flick back a couple of pages in your Bibles, chapter 6 and verse 30. Mark's record of the feeding of the 5,000. That uh, time, that earlier miracle, they started with five loaves and two fish, and no one left hungry, and there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And when the miracle was done, the first one, chapter 6, verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And it's exactly the same. Miracle 1, 5,000 plus the women and the children. Five loaves, two fish, twelve basketfuls, and a boat. And miracle two, four thousand, seven loaves, a few fish, seven baskets, and a boat. Now, if you're a Bible commentator, all your instincts are to have what they call an excursus and try to explain the significance of the five thousand, the five, the two, the twelve, the seven, and the four thousand. Now, you need to stop. It's just eyewitness detail. It's what happened. I would distrust Mark's reliability if he said there were lots left over. There were 12 and 7 baskets. Detail. Now back to Mark 8, 1 to 10. What is Jesus doing here? He is feeding the people because they are hungry. And we must not miss that. He is not indifferent to their nor our physical needs. Verse 2, he has compassion on the crowd because they have been with him for three days and they have not eaten. They must have been starving. 
I, I think they must have also been keen to listen to him for three days. You lot get twitchy after half an hour. Let's cancel lunch. Let's stay for three. I wonder what state we'd be in here after three days. We're a lock-in. I mean, it's striking, isn't it? When the Son of God was on the earth, they'd forgotten about their tummies. But he wants to feed them. He doesn't want them to faint on the way home, for some of them had come from a long way. But there's something else going on here. Jesus is testing his disciples. Now, we know that from the context, but also from the details in the text. The end of verse 1 is a kind of signal in the way Mark writes. Jesus called his disciples to him. He said, look, come around me. We've got a problem. These people are hungry and we need to feed them. And I wonder if Jesus' pulse quickened a little bit. Would the disciples get it? Would they understand? Would Peter pipe up and say to the other disciples, it's okay. Jesus has this covered. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Remember a month ago, we just had five loaves and two fishes and we gave them to him and he did that wonderful miracle. All we need to do is find some loaves and fishes. And then Peter turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, look, this is impossible humanly, but you're God, you're the Messiah. Look, we've got this tiny amount of food. Please, will you perform another miracle? What does Peter say? Verse 4. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? In other words, it is impossible. There are no Tesco's or Greg's or anything for miles. Now that would have been discouraging to Jesus. I think in his full humanity, Jesus would have felt the discouragement of their inability to see. In the same way that you and I feel the discouragement of people's inability to see. And he asked them, verse 5, it's almost as if he gives them another chance. How many loaves, trying to in their minds. How many loaves do you have? Peter, would Peter get it? No. And he says five. And then Jesus performs the miracle. And following the miracle, they get back in the boat, verse 10, and they cross the lake to Dalmanutha. And I expect that on the boat journey, there would not be a lot of conversation. Jesus discouraged. And as soon as they land, Jesus is met by the Pharisees who come for an argument. The last thing Jesus needed. And they come to, Mark records, test Jesus, testing 
is a theme in this central section. And they ask for a sign. Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. Because he knows that these religious leaders, if he gave them a thousand signs, would never humbly trust him as their saviour and submit to his authority. And uh, they get back in the boat, Jesus and the disciples. Verse 13. And uh, Mark records a very odd detail in verse 14. It is odd. Just uh, think about it. He is not a man of many words, is Mark. And he tells us in verse 14 that having got back into the boat, they had forgotten to buy a loaf of bread. Seems an odd thing to write. Just another signal of eyewitness evidence. And I imagine, say, an hour into the boat journey, perhaps it was a little windy and stormy like today, the disciples would at least be glad they had something to do in the boat, tacking against the wind, just so they wouldn't have to speak to Jesus. Jesus is sitting there, perhaps silent. And then he breaks the silence. Verse 13, look what it says. He says to the disciples in the boat, watch out or beware the leaven, which is the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And what Jesus is talking about is the attitude of the Pharisees and Herod. They are against Jesus, antagonistic towards him. And when that antagonism gets a grip, it spreads, it expands, and is pervasive like yeast. And Jesus is, what, is warning his disciples to be aware of that. Not warning them in the sense that, look, you're going to face this kind of opposition from them. Rather, he is warning them that without understanding, without seeing, without hearing, they are in the same position as the Pharisees. So if you've drifted off to sleep or your mind has not been engaged in God's Word for the last five minutes, beware. Watch out. Watch out that that attitude doesn't become habitual Sunday by Sunday. That's what he's saying. You see, you either see or you don't see. You either hear or you don't hear. Your heart is soft or hard. There is a simplicity to the gospel. You believe it or you don't. And that is a liberating thing, but it's a challenging thing. And of course, they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. We know that from verse 16. They begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus had said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And they think that he is talking about the fact they've forgotten to bring bread for the journey. They just don't get it. And Jesus, aware of this, verse 17, says to you, why are you talking about the fact you've got no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Now, imagine the boat. Jesus speaking to them. Do you not perceive or understand? I imagine Peter's eyes would go down. 
They couldn't meet his eyes. Do you not perceive or understand? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls full of broken pieces did you take up? There was silence. Maybe Jesus asked it again and, and one of them piped up. Twelve. And then just earlier today, how many basketfuls did we pick up? And the eyes go down again. And Seven. Now I promised you I'm never going to talk about my children again. I'm going to do it one more time. <laughs> they do round to me when I go home, and rightly so. Some of you here are primary school teachers. I was teaching one of our, our children fractions. And he just couldn't get it. He couldn't see it. He saw the numbers in the answer, but he didn't understand how they had got there. And I said to him, do you not understand? And he just looked back at me, and it was obvious. Daddy, I don't have a clue. No, he does know. And the Son of God says to this band of people who are all around him, do you not understand? And the answer is, All that stuff I've said to you, all that teaching and all these private discussions. Mark records all through his gospel, they walked along the road. They would have talked together. All that they had seen, these miracles, the 5,000, the 4,000, the crowds wouldn't have seen what was going on, but the disciples did. They picked up the baskets. Do you not see? They were there with him in the storm. No one else was. Peter and James and John were with him in that room when he'd taken the little girl's hand and said, get up. Do you not see who I am? Now let's look at the miracles Mark records. Remember the big point in Mark's narrative. And you'll see that. It takes a miracle to understand who Jesus is. Firstly, a miracle of hearing and speaking, 731 to 37. They brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And the miracle itself is striking. Jesus touches the man's ears. He spits and touches the man's tongue. It is very visceral. It is very physical. Why? Simply, I think, to convey how close, how personal is the identification of Jesus with that person. And then the words from Jesus be opened. In verse 35, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, 
and he spoke clearly. That's a wonderful verse. He could hear and therefore he could speak plainly and clearly. His speech impediment was gone. And what is the spiritual significance of this miracle? Remember Jesus' words to his disciples, verse 18, and having ears, do you not hear? It takes a miracle from God to open our ears that we might hear and understand about Jesus. And it is only when we hear clearly that we are in a position to speak clearly about him. We cannot explain the gospel until we understand it. So why on earth, verse 36, does Jesus charge the people not to tell anyone? Well, let's turn to the second miracle for the answer. Chapter 8, 22 to 33, a strange miracle. A miracle of seeing in two parts. Verse 22, some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. It's very similar to the previous miracle. Jesus spits and touches the man's eyes and then Jesus asks him, the end of verse 23, do you see anything? Now, we know what comes next, many of us, but just suspend that. If you didn't know what comes next, all your expectations would be that with a touch from the Son of God, the question, do you see anything? Yes, Jesus, I see everything. Chris prayed that uh, we would get 2020 vision. Uh, that man had not yet got 20-20 vision. The man sees people that look like trees. In the earlier service, this isn't going to happen in this one, but I made the comment that, again, one of my Bible commentaries moves into a long dialogue here to explain how this is medically explicable which led to another conversation after the service about exactly how. That's another point. Of course, it's medically explicable. You'd expect that. This happened. But he saw people walking around in like trees. Kind of blurred vision. And then Jesus touches him again in the eyes and he sees everything clearly. People look like people. But notice that Jesus took the man, verse 23, outside of the village to heal him. Notice, having healed him, he says, don't go back to the village, go home. In other words, don't tell anyone what's happened. Surely he should tell people. Now again, what's the spiritual significance of this? Remember Jesus' words in the central section? You have eyes, but you do not see. Do you not yet understand? It'll take a miracle from God to open your eyes. And that spiritual significance implied is made explicit in verses 27 to 33. Just read with me from verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. That's the word in the street about who Jesus is. And then verse 29, the question, as personal as the personal touch of the Lord Jesus on the man's ears and his eyes and his tongue, the personal question, 
But who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the King who's long been promised to save us from our sins. You still not understand how many loaves? Twelve. How many loaves? Seven. Do you not see? Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. I see. I hear. I understand. How did that happen? Where did Peter get that from? From God. A miracle from God in Peter's mind. His ears unstopped. His eyes opened. His heart softened. Surely Peter is now ready to go and tell. Verse 30, Jesus said, Peter, whatever you do, do not tell anyone the gospel. That's a strange thing to say. I used to miss that verse out for years. I didn't have any idea what it was there for. Why is he not to tell people the gospel yet? Of course, he is to tell people the gospel. Peter is the apostle that preached the first sermon in the church, Acts 2. Why is he not to tell people yet? Because he doesn't yet fully see the double touch that let the blind man see. Peter needs another touch for him to see what that the Messiah is not the kind of Messiah Peter wanted. What did Peter want? I think Peter wanted the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, every other authority overthrown for his Savior and him. Peter needed to see that the Messiah verse, where is it? What comes next? 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach Peter that he must die. And what did Peter say to that? He rebuked Jesus. He said, no, that's not the gospel. See why Jesus said, don't tell anyone the gospel? Jesus turns to Peter and he says, I mean, it's pretty harsh, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. How precious is the gospel? Jesus died for our sins to Jesus. It is so precious that he will defend it from anything. What is anything in the gospel that is not Christ died for our sins? Worldly satanic thinking. Now Peter would come to see gloriously so that God could entrust that man with the first sermon in the church of his son. But here his vision is blurred. Now, let me apply this to us in five ways. Your hearts just uh, will sink momentarily, thinking five, what time is it? Remember, Jesus had them for three days. <laughs> You'll get out in 32 minutes and you have your lunch. Number one, it always takes a miracle to understand who Jesus is, and you are not the exception to the rule, nor am I. 
In every case, every conversion is a miracle. If you're sitting here as a Christian, a miracle from the God of heaven has happened in your life. Now, I'm not sure we really believe that. For many of us, our conversions are ordinary. Most of us, logical. We grew up in a Christian home. We put our faith and trust in Jesus. I don't think I can remember a time growing up from after I was five when I didn't really believe in Jesus or think I was a Christian. I probably was. You've gone on following Jesus, ups and downs, but you've always followed him. You tell others the gospel, there is nothing miraculous about what has happened to you. Yes, there is. That's what this is saying. In every case, it takes a miracle from the God of heaven to understand who Jesus is. Now, God's miracle in your life, miracles are not magic. Remember why Jesus sighed. These people always want a sign, a visual sign. The visual signs I see before me this morning are transformed lives. Sometimes people speak of miracle conversions and other conversions. And miracle conversions are ones like Saul who became Paul or the Damascus Road experience. You know, in a, in a Christian conference or a testimony evening, when someone gives a Damascus Road type conversion, everybody's ears prick up. We think that's kind of more special. Now, there are one or two people in church this morning who were converted like that, dramatically, suddenly, instantaneously. Of course it happens. They just needed one touch from Jesus on their eyes. Most of us needed more than one touch. It's not because we were more obstinate. It's just that's how it was. But the fact that Jesus touched that man's eyes twice did not mean, and you're with me on this, that Jesus' omnipotence was kind of turned down for a moment. It's just as powerful, just as sovereign, just as divine. It's just how it was. The miracle took longer. And it's true, isn't it? Think of your own coming to faith in Christ. For many of you, your eyes will have been prized open slowly, hazy, blurred vision, and then things over time become clear. Somebody was at the first service who'd not been in church before, and and I said to him, it's lovely to see you here. Please come back for a few months and listen. Why? Because often God takes time to open people's eyes. It always takes a miracle to understand who Jesus is, and there are no exceptions. And you see, it's logical. How how are you sitting here as a Christian? One, because the God of heaven sent his Son from heaven to earth to save you. You couldn't do that. Two, the Son of God, when he was here, went to a cross and died uniquely, bearing your sin and God's wrath. You couldn't do that. So why on earth, when it comes to the bit when you believe, is that us and not God? has to be God. The God of heaven breaks into your life with a miracle to save us. Second application for Christians. That process of God revealing truth never stops. 
Now, if I was to say to you, and you're not going to do anything because you're Scottish or English or from this country, maybe you will this time. They didn't do it in the first service. Lift your hand up if you have finally arrived and you know everything there is to know about Jesus and God. I wonder what we'd do if someone did. Hands are down, of course. We need to keep on being spoken to by God. God continues to reveal truth to us. That's another application of this double touch. When you're Christians, it's not as if you have all the knowledge you need for life. You've got all the saving knowledge you need. But all the stuff that Mark goes on to teach in 9 and 10 about discipleship. How many of us have thoroughly grasped the power and the need for life that are truly servant-hearted? Hands up. How are we going to grasp it? Because God will open our minds and ears and eyes to see it. Third application. Once we understand who Jesus is, we are to tell people about him, but we'll never make them understand. That's not very succinct, is it? Once we understand who Jesus is, we are to tell people about him, but we will never make them understand. Once Peter understood, God gave him the baton to preach the first sermon in the church at Pentecost. And he spoke of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thousands of people became Christians that day. Why? Not because of Peter's persuasive rhetoric. Because the Holy Spirit broke into their lives in a miracle. See how it happened? And in our small way, when we understand who Jesus is, when we understand Christ died for our sins, we are to speak the gospel. The bars on speaking the gospel here in Mark 8 are only temporary. Once understanding comes, we are to speak the gospel. Think of the parables in chapter 4. The farmer sows the word, the farmer speaks the truth. But when we do, you and I will never persuade people to become Christians. Often I stand up here, particularly on a communion Sunday, and I think wrongly that the gospel has been explained clearly. I stand with bread and wine in my hands, the visual signs that point us to the Lord Jesus. I feel moved by it. And I say, perhaps for you now is the time when you will see and understand and believe in Jesus. You almost want to will it to happen. And I look up during the communion, praying that that person who has never taken communion will have seen and understood and that day will take it. Very often it doesn't happen because God has not opened their ears or their eyes. It did happen a few weeks ago with somebody. It's wonderful. I always wanted to stand up and shout out, but I didn't because I'm Scottish. Now, this will never liberate us from doing evangelism, but it will liberate us in doing evangelism. You will never 
in our gospel project, ever do evangelism, if you wait long enough to be able to perfectly explain Mark's gospel, because you will never get there. And again and again, the years ahead will testify to the fact that the least articulate amongst us, the most fuddled minds, the least persuasive explanations, people will become Christians. People will become Christians entirely devoid of any activity from us. There was a fellow here in the first service who is here because in his hotel bedroom, he went into a drawer and he picked out a Gideon Bible. They're still there and he read it and he came to church. God may be opening his mind and his ears and his eyes. And we just observe. Fourth application. Do not be discouraged in evangelism. We often feel like there is a brick wall. The CU missions are happening all over our country in the UK. And uh, I guess the experience of those who are doing the missions is that they are up against a brick wall. Sam and I and Laura and uh, Chris are off to Strathclyde this week. And uh, I'm sure we'll see some brick walls in Strathclyde. And you speak the gospel and people can't see and they can't understand. Or at the invite stage, you ask people to come along to stuff and they're just not interested. Their hearts are hard. It's a complete no-brainer to me to say to somebody, and I tried it with a fellow at the earlier service, look, just for three months, just for six weeks, just give time to, to listen, to come along to church. Just listen, just listen for a few months. A few months in your whole life, given all eternity might be staked upon it. Why won't people do that? Why won't people in our city crowd into the church? On a big scale in our country. Because it takes God by a miracle to burden them to do it. We can't do it. We pray he will though. We pray he will. So don't be discouraged. God will go on breaking down brick walls. Every day. Every month. Every year. And the fifth and final application is this. Do you understand who Jesus is? Now, you see what Jesus gets to in this text? Who do people say that I am? Most people in our culture have a view of Jesus. He's a great teacher, famous person who once lived. He used to be famous in our country. People used to follow him. But that's not the question Jesus leaves us with. The question he leaves us with is, who do you think that I am? Not the person next to you, not the person in front of you, not the person behind you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. He got it. You are the Messiah, Jesus. You are my Savior. You are the one sent by God as my King. You are the one who will lay down your life. He didn't get it now, but he will. You lay down your life. Now, that was burned into Peter's heart when he said, I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him three times. And Jesus looked at him. Like he looks at him here, like he looks at you, and he burns that into our hearts by his grace and his mercy. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? 
And don't listen to me. It's, it's that way down the question. Who do you say that I am for the Lord? The man who will touch your eyes with his hand, touch your ears with his hand, touch your tongue with his hand. So intimate, so personal, so real, so visceral. Who do you say that I am? Now, if your vision is blurred, ask God to open your eyes. If you're hearing every second word, ask God to open your ears. And if you do see, ask God, like that man did in the next chapter. Jesus, help my unbelief. Help me to believe. Help me to believe. It's wonderful stuff, Mark's gospel, but far more wonderful is that God might be in this room opening somebody's eyes to see for the first time. Let's pray. Father God, these are great chapters in your word, so easy for us to understand and to see or not. We pray, Lord, that each one of us in this room, by your grace and in your mercy, will be able to hear who Jesus is, be able to see who he is, and put our faith and trust in him for our salvation. May we all be able to say, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're my Savior. You died for my sins. I follow you as Lord. And if we can't yet see clearly, help us to seek that sight. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears. Have mercy upon our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.